Titus 3, 1 to 8. Doing what is good. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient and deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then we'll go to Philippians. This is page 832, uh, 4, verses 1 to 9. Yes, and I'm doing my own version of words, of names. Therefore, my brothers, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eudea and plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke, yoke folk, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, let's come before our Lord God in prayer and uh, think about this topic of prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time we have to consider your word now. We thank you for this opportunity and we pray that you would help us to concentrate uh, and to grow in our knowledge of uh, what your word teaches us about prayer. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the advantages of coming from the the Reformed and Presbyterian uh, tradition is that some people in our tradition have thought carefully about God's word uh, and in some ways we get to stand on the shoulders of giants who've actually uh, worked hard to, to put it together and to help us understand topics in it. One of the topics is prayer. And uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel for uh, the uh, answer to the question at the top of your bulletin. You'll see it says, uh, what is prayer? When I was given that topic to preach on today, I thought, well, why reinvent the wheel? Let's have a look at what the Catechism has to say. Those confession writers wrote the Catechism as well. And question 98 asks that question, what is prayer? And here's the answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. The things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, 
with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. It's a good little definition, isn't it? We're not going to unpack the entire thing today, but I do want to say when the writers spoke about offering up our desires unto God, they were drawing upon a tradition where God's people have always done that kind of thing. In the Psalms, we look at Psalm 62 verse 7 and it says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And we can connect with that, can't we? Think about the times in life when you face difficulties and sorrows, when you've gone through hardships, you've looked at the future and you've wondered, how am I going to get through all this? Are those the times when you've come to God in prayer? I know I have. The times when we uh, share with God what's going on inside us and we, we might even shed some tears and think about some of the th- sad things or the difficult things we've been through. Uh, these are the times when it comes natural to us to pour out our hearts to God in prayer. So as we pray, we're communicating with God. That's at its simplest. We're talking to God and we know that we can do this uh, like we've done in the service today by speaking out loud or we can do it in the quietness of our own hearts and in our minds. But although it's simple to talk to about a definition of prayer where we're just talking to God, uh, it's still worth considering the topic because there might be some answers to questions which we need to straighten out. For example, does God want to listen to us when we pray? Do we need to be some kind of prayer warrior to get our prayers through to the Almighty? And does God listen to the prayers of those people who are described in the Bible as not his children? Well, I want to address that last question first. Does God listen to the prayers of those who aren't his children? The Bible describes humanity as being made in God's image, which from Genesis it seems to be something that people have that's unique about them in comparison to the rest of God's creation. People bear God's image, which I take it means they uh, reflect something of God on earth. They're created to be the rulers of God's creation under God. And they're capable of having a relationship with God. Adam and Eve know God personally. Yet we see something of a divorce between people and God after the fall. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve uh, didn't want to just be creatures. They wanted to be, um, it seems, like God. That was the temptation from the serpent. You'll be like God. Uh, And they grasped at that. And so after that, as we know, they were cast out of Eden. And there's a, a divorce between humanity and God from there on in. And Paul describes this state of affairs for all of humanity in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, Now people suppress the truth about God. They know something of God. They know something of his eternal power and his divine nature from what has been made. But people fail to give thanks to God and to glorify him. Instead, they turn to idols, things made to look like mortal man, birds and animals. In other parts of the Bible, in Ephesians, humanity is described as being dead in transgressions and sins. Following the ways of the world, 
and also following Satan. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 3. We're included. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so the Bible's presentation of humanity uh, is something of a tension. On the one hand, people have dignity. They are made in the image of God. Uh, and there's something of God's common grace, which means that uh, people aren't as bad as maybe as they could be. Yet on the other hand, uh, since the fall, all people are affected by that. And every aspect of our beings affected by sin. So people are created with dignity and, and made in the image of God on one hand. They know something of God and the Bible tells us that they have the law written in their heart. And so we know right from wrong. But the problem is that we fail to live up to what we know is right and how God does call us to live. And so we're born into a world with a disease called sin and we each live out that disease and rebel against God. By nature, we're not inclined to want to love God or, or submit to him. And we show then in our attitudes and our behaviour the symptoms of that disease as we sin against God and as we sin against one another. So the Bible describes humanity outside of Christ as being under God's wrath and we spend our years outside of Eden in a world where there is turmoil, much uh, sorrow and hardship and eventually we uh, either suffer organ failure or we're overcome by some disease or the environment in which we live and we return to dust from which we're actually made up of. Well, this is all fairly heavy stuff and it's to be taken seriously, but it's important to get those foundations in place to begin with, to see what humanity is like outside of Christ, if we're to understand prayer. For God's word teaches us that since people are dead in their sins, they're not inclined to suddenly want to turn back to God, to thank him for giving them life and health and every good. It doesn't come naturally. Since people are dead in sins, they're not neutral towards God. The Bible describes humanity as something on the run, away from God. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve realise that they've, um, they've actually sinned against God, they, they're hiding from God. In John's Gospel, we learn that people won't come into the light. They, they don't want to see, have their evil deeds seen. And in Romans, we see that people are active. They're active in suppressing the knowledge of God in smothering the truth about God. People aren't neutral with respect to God. They're either running towards God or they're running away. And since this is the case, uh, we conclude from what the Bible teaches that people lose their privilege to come before God as Father uh, and can't assume that he listens to their prayer in the same way that he listens to the prayer of those who are in a right relationship with him. Paul draws these ideas together in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 to 8, and says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Well, that's a fairly sobering thought about a world estranged from God, experienced something of a big divorce. But it's worth raising the question then, where does that leave us? Well, God in his wisdom and in accordance with his plan of salvation sends his spirit to subdue the wills of rebellious people that they might turn and put their trust in the work of his saviour Jesus in order that people might be reconciled to God and come and draw near to God in prayer. And so the possibility of people praying to God depends first upon God's grace. We need to be reconciled to God. In the Old Testament, uh, God provided laws and a system of sacrifices so that people could maintain their relationship with God. There were prophets and priests who were designated to represent the people before God and offer sacrifice for their own sin and sin for the people. But the New Testament describes this sort of system as something of a shadow of the reality to come. And the writer to the Hebrews points out that Jesus has come to finish off that process and to deal with sin once for all so that people can draw near to God, people like you and I. So if you kindly turn to Hebrews chapter 7 in your Red Pew Bibles there, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23, this is what Jesus does to reconcile us to God, that we might draw near to God in prayer. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. These are the priests of the Old Testament. And they died, so they had to have new ones. Verse 24, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And if you'd skip over to chapter 9, verse 26, this really completes the picture of what Jesus has done. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's 926. 927. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So the good news is that Jesus comes as the perfect high priest and sacrifice. And as the risen Lord who's ascended into heaven, he intercedes for us 
that we might be able to draw near to God in prayer. Our problem with sin and our rebellion against God isn't such a trivial thing that we, um, we need just to follow Jesus' example of godliness and that, that sorts out things with God and us. Our problem or our disease is much more complex than a common cold. Uh, we needed something more radical to deal with our problem, something a bit more like a heart transplant. And so we see the seriousness of our condition as divorced from God by the fact that God takes radical action and sends Jesus, the God-man, into the world to deal with our sin, to sort out our situation. And so we find that we can only seriously come to God in prayer when we're reconciled to God through the work of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has a role in that process of actually us being reconciled to God. Because as we've read earlier, it doesn't come naturally to people to turn to God, to glorify God and give thanks to God. It comes naturally to people to turn away from God. But as the passage from Titus was read out earlier, we see that there's the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives to change us. And there's a, there's a word called renewal, is what the Holy Spirit does to us. If you've got your Bibles open there to Titus chapter 3, I'll read that section. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, Titus is just before Hebrews. Titus 3, verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Paul assumes that people have that nature. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of of eternal life. So if we are people who pray to God, who have a, a living relationship with God, it's because we've, we do so on the basis of the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God's actually done a work in your life to actually incline yourself towards him. And that's what it's taken to raise us who are dead in sin to new life with God. So the question then becomes, can we pray with assurance that God hears us? Can we know that when we pray, all is well between us and God? Some people, when they're asked that question, they'd say, well, I hope so. I'm not sure that he hears me, but I'd hope that he would. But that doesn't sound like something that they're very confident in. Well, I'd want to say in the first place that God accepts and he hears Jesus. That's something we know from Scripture. Jesus was faithful as God's son and God accepted his sacrifice. We see something of God's acceptance of Jesus in uh, Luke's gospel at Jesus' baptism where God says, You are my son in whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then when Jesus goes out and is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he overcomes that temptation. 
He lives faithfully to God, unlike Adam, who succumbed. And as mentioned earlier, God has accepted Jesus as a sacrifice and as the one who intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So God, in the first place, accepts Jesus and he accepts Jesus' prayers. And the Bible describes us as being in the good position of being accepted by God because we're connected to Christ. The Bible describes our situation or our station as believers in life as those who are united to Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in us. We're united to Christ. And it's because we are united to Christ, we're acceptable to God as Jesus is. We're incorporated into him. And so when we come to pray to God, we don't pray in our own uh, strength, our own holiness. We're not confident of our own righteousness. But we come on the basis of what Jesus has done and his righteousness. We live not as the status of those who are condemned by God. Our status is now as those who are the children of God. This is what Paul says in Galatians. He says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. We don't need to think of ourselves as uh, being prayer warriors to come to God. We don't have to you know, have some kind of fancy language. We just need to come to God, our Father, in prayer, with the simplicity of a child going to their parents. We have the status of the children of God, and so when we come to prayer, we know that God hears us. Our relationship's been restored. If people aren't in Christ, though, then there's still a problem. They're, they're still under God's condemnation. They still live under God's wrath. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are united to Christ, there is the confidence that we can come to God and ask things according to his will, in the same way that a child would come and talk to their parents. So what is happening then when we pray? We're up to point four in your outline. What's happening when we pray? Well, prayer is not simply uh, throwing words around willy-nilly. We're recognising that we are someone's creatures, that we're someone's children, and that we have the privilege of speaking to God as Father on the basis of the work of his Son, our Lord Jesus, and we come to God in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're sitting down to pray, we're taking out time to remember who it is that we are, that we are someone's creatures. When we offer up our desires to God or when we pour out our hearts to God, we're showing that we're, we're taking our relationship with God seriously, that we're coming to terms with God's will for our lives, that we have a living and active faith, not a dead faith. But above all, we're not praying in order to climb some kind of stairway to heaven. A relationship with God's already been established by what Jesus has done. 
So that brings us to point five. What is our responsibility when it comes to prayer? Well, in simple terms, God calls us to be obedient. He calls us to be obedient children. And Paul uh, reminds us with a command that we should pray. So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, Scott's going to talk a little bit further in coming weeks on the topic of prayer, about how we should pray. But suffice to say, God calls us to be obedient. That's the first reason we're called to pray, to be obedient to God. We're told not to be anxious, but to pray. So we should follow God's command and come to God in prayer. As we do so, we need to remember that it's good for us to pray, that God wants us to pray. Uh, He's redeemed us. We've been told in Corinthians that we have been bought with a price. Uh, And we need to remember who we are before God and, in fact, whose we are, the fact that we are owned by God. And so we ought not only honour God with our bodies, we also ought to honour God and come to him in prayer. So the challenge for us this week is to continue to be people who enjoy that privileged relationship with God, to know clearly that because we are his children, it's good to come to him in prayer. There's natural times of the day when it's appropriate, when we wake up in the morning and pray about the day before us, when we sit down and share a meal, to be thankful for the things that God's provided. And certainly as we reflect on God's word uh, by ourselves or with a group, And at the end of the day, these are the natural times we should be praying and it's good to pray. But above all, it's important for us to remember that because we are God's children, uh, it's the right thing for us to do to pray. It is good for us to pour out our hearts to God and be grateful for this um, provision that we can come to God as his children. May we be people who rise to the challenge to be people of prayer this week. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for your goodness and your wisdom in establishing a plan for our salvation. We know that by nature it doesn't come naturally to us to want to submit to you, that by nature we'd sooner rebel against you and do our own thing. Father, we thank you that you uh, subdue our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You help us to understand what you've done for us in Christ, that we might enjoy life as your children and come and draw near to you in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can talk to you as our Father in heaven, uh, that you do care for us. We thank you for that privileged position. And we pray that you would help us to take seriously the relationship we have with you and enjoy coming before you in prayer. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.